Hello, and welcome to the Resonance Test. I'm your host, Kenji Ross, a design strategist from EPAM Continuum. The idea of selling out as an artist has a long and complex history. In the 90s and early 2000s, there was nothing that signified low artistic integrity than leveraging your art for commercial ends. From the Minutemen's Jam Econo ethos to Eddie Vedder's disdainful song about a $600 corduroy jacket patterned after one of his thrift store finds, it felt like culture was truly pushing back against commerce. Nirvana selling 30 million copies of Nevermind was kind of cool, but also a bit scary. Kurt Cobain certainly didn't take it well. As an impressionable teenager at the time, I was convinced that this anti-commercial stance was a new movement, that authentic culture had somehow recently been co-opted by big business. But like a lot of my teenage impressions, this was way off. This debate had already been raging for at least 50 years. In his fascinating new book, The Free World, Art and Thought in the Cold War, Louis Menand puts it all into context. Turns out it's the powerful nexus of art and commerce that allowed American culture to become one of our most important exports in the 20th century and enabled the artists of my teens to thrive. Even today, Hollywood dominates the global film scene and American pop music is what you're most likely to hear upon exiting an airport in another part of the world. In today's episode of The Resonance Test, producer Ken Gordon buys the ticket and takes the ride, covering a broad swath of post-war culture the beat poets, the existentialists, the creation of English departments and universities, Elvis, Tintin, Jasper Johns. The ideology of creation is that we don't talk about the business side of it, Manan says, but without the business side of it, you can't get your product out to people. Today's generations have no such compunctions about art being a commercial venture. In fact, they embrace it. And in doing so, they're not so much ignoring the punk rockers as they are embracing the pop artists. What's old, as you may have heard, is new again. Hi, Louis. Welcome to the Residence Test. We're, we're really happy to have you here. Hi, Ken. It's nice to be here. Cool. So uh, you start your book with uh, the noted diplomat and historian George Kennan. So let's begin. Let's begin with George. Uh, I don't. I didn't know much about Kennan to be honest, but your first uh, chapter really stuck with me and, and called it my whole reading of the free world. Because as I was reading, I kept thinking of the volume as a kind of active, uh, an act of containment. You know, you're always <laughs> looking to counteract our creeping illusions and misconceptions, right, about the great or supposedly great art and ideas of the 20th century by kind of grounding them in this sort of proper multidimensional historical context. How do you feel about being cast as our George <laughs> Kennan? <laughs> no, I don't like that idea at all. <laughs> yeah. I mean, your characterization of my historical method is accurate. I'm trying to give readers not just a sense of what these really mostly well-known figures accomplished, but how it was possible for them to do what they did. But I don't really think of it as a form of containment. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Fair enough. So, so much of your book is really about how the conditions are created uh, for the success of a specific idea or artist. I'm thinking off the top of my head just about how Leo Caselli was doing some behind-the-scenes machinations to make sure <laughs> Jasper Johns and Rauschenberg became the high-priced champions of the art world that they did. Yeah. And then how about that idea or artist goes into enter the market and to fill a particular need at a particular moment? 
I was wondering, did writing uh, The Free World make you more conscious about how this process has played out in like the career of your academic and journalistic contemporaries? Or maybe did it make you think about the reception of your own latest book and how that might look to a future historian, let's say? I think about that all the time anyway, you know, because I've, uh, in my career, I've been both a professor, but also a magazine writer. And, Mm -hmm. you know, when you're in the magazine business, most people who write regularly for magazines have a pretty keen sense of how it operates as an industry uh, and what your role is and so on. So it's, it's just the way I think anyway. And it's Mm -hmm. most of my life. I'm very conscious of that. So it was just natural for me to think about these other uh, writers and artists in the context of the industry, culture industries that they worked in. In the case of, for example, Jasper Johns and Robert Rauschenberg, who were, two avant-garde painters who burst on the scene almost simultaneously in 1958 when they had a show at Leo Castelli's gallery. Mm-hmm. What, what was important to them, what they had, which earlier generations of American painters, avant-garde painters didn't have, was an art world, meaning uh, galleries, dealers, collectors, museums, critics who were interested in what they were doing, who understood it, who could get it out to the public. Um, and in their case, Leo Castelli was a kind of very enterprising gallery owner who mm-hmm. kind of revolutionized the business of dealing art. Um, and one of the things he did was to get his uh, painters a lot of attention. So I try to describe how he did that. I don't think there's anything unusual underhanded about it. It's mm-hmm. just that kind of the ideology of creation is that we don't talk about the business side of it, but without yeah. the business side of it, you, there's just, no, you can't get your product out to people. Well, totally. And I, I feel like that's, I think it's probably a surprise maybe to some of your readers who have a, this kind of notion of the disinterested, you know, production and reception of art and ideas that this is a business. And so yeah. I, I really felt like in some ways it was almost like a, like a, a business first book. Like, and yeah. I, well, I don't, suspect that business leaders are your ideal readers. I do think that there's a certain kind of business leader whose mind would be blown and will learn some very serious pragmatic lessons from the free world. Let's yeah. say, let's pretend for a second that I was like this imaginary literate CEO. What would you say to interest me in your volume? Well, it, the story of the, I mean, there's, there's many stories that I think emerge in the course of the book. Um, but one of the big stories is the, uh, growth and maturity of the American culture industries. That would include Hollywood, mm-hmm. the music business, pub- book publishing, magazine publishing, um, and the art world, and uh, and also the university. So all those industries boom after 1945. They're just tremendous growth and expansion and openness to new forms of thinking and new forms of art making and music making. Um, and they and they have a much bigger public than they did before 1945 in the U.S. The other part of it that's important to keep in mind is that this is made possible by a great amount of transnational cultural exchange from Europe to the United States, from the United States to Japan, from Japan back to the United States to India. Um, there's a really global circulation of ideas and and artists, um, that's also somewhat unprecedented. Um, and that kind of opens the door to the world we're in now, where American culture industries really dominate culture, but culture now is a global culture that goes everywhere. 
Mm-hmm. Now, speaking of going everywhere, let's talk a little bit about um, the cultural winners of your book, right? In talking about rock and roll, you write, the cultural winners are goods or styles that maintain market share through generational taste shifts. That is through all the king is dead, long live the king moments that mark the phases of a cultural history for people living through it. Who would you say are like the biggest cultural winners in the free world? Who are the people who still have that uh, influence uh, even today? And uh, and if, and could you point to a contemporary winner that seems to play such staying power? If you dare uh, move forward, yeah, I don't dare to do the latter, so I'm going to skip that one. <laughs> okay. But um, I just, you know, I don't know enough about the scene to pick out a winner. But and it's hard to know at the time um, what style, what kind of artist is is going to have a long life. You know, most I my general feeling is that most. Uh, careers uh, that is defining career as the moment when a figure emerges who captures everyone's attention, who tends to kind of dominate the scene that they're in for a certain period of time. That only is about three or four years. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't last very long. It's those years when that, that person tends to produce what becomes associated with them most, no matter what they go on to do for the rest of their career. The rest of their career will be quite long, like Jasper Johns is still painting, but it's really what he did in the period between, let's say, 1958 and 1965 that defines him right. and people still talk about. So I'm interested in those moments when Elvis was the king of rock and roll or Jackson mm-hmm. Pollock was the leading abstract expressionist or Andy Warhol was the leading pop artist, Allen Ginsberg was the great beat poet and so on, try to figure out how the life story of those individual figures who were all, of course, extremely talented people intersected with a set of historical conditions they made it possible for them to become headliners or cultural winners if you want to call it that so my definition of cultural winner it's is, this is just a term i made up it doesn't mm-hmm. have any scientific meaning but sure. that you that you read is that cultural winners are people who live beyond persist beyond the sort of three-year moment when they burst on the scene or five years or whatever it is so pop art is a very short-lived phenomenon, really, but it's a cultural winner in the sense we still talk about pop art. I would say most of the figures I write about are, you know, have that have that sort of longevity to them. Not that they keep producing the same work at the same level, but that they everybody knows who Elvis is, everybody knows who Pollock is, Ginsburg, and so on. So those are the people I'm interested in in this book. It's not to say that there aren't people who were neglected or are still neglected who aren't important and interesting figures. It's just that I'm kind of interested in the, because of what I'm trying to look at makes me kind of interested in the people who, you know, became, uh, became headliners. Got it. Now, uh, one of the things that I liked about the book particularly was this sort of narrative richness and consistency, which it, to me seemed due to your, you have this kind of thing you spelled out in the preface. It's almost your version of, of Joyce's Nanati schema where you created the historiographic challenge for yourself. And each story you said considers the underlying social forces, the kind of social networks in which your uh, thinkers and artists were embedded and sort of the contents of your subjects heads and, and what they understood <laughs> they were yeah. doing. Right. Yeah. How conscious of you, uh, how conscious of this were you when you were putting the book together? Did you actually have a chart making sure you're hitting all three things or is it more free form um, just in storytelling that you, you t- took approach? Uh, 
No, I was super conscious of it. It's very funny. It is a bit like Linati's schema. Isn't it? That's what it sounded <laughs> yeah. like. I know. It, it's true. Uh, well, I, that's how I wanted to do it from the start. And I um, uh, I don't make outlines or anything. So I, you know, I just go sentence to sentence. But um, you know, every chapter I try to treat in that way so that each chapter takes up a different figure mm-hmm. or a different movement, like existentialism, let's say. Yeah. Uh, and it um, tends to be biographically focused because I think that's the best way to tell these stories. And it's an important ingredient in understanding what comes out. Uh, and it tries then to, pro- to provide the specific context for that movement or that figure, that artist or writer. Um, so, uh, you know, in the case of structural anthropology to – Pick a chapter nobody seems to want to talk about. <laughs> uh, the context is decolonization. Yeah. You know, that's what Levi Strauss was living through, and that's what he was thinking about when he wrote Tris Tropiques. Um, the context for British pop art, which way precedes American pop art, mm-hmm. uh, starts early in 1952 or so, is consumerism and the spread of American consumer goods abroad, and so on. So that each each chapter has its own contextual uh, narrative. And they're all quite, they're all different from one another. One of the things, of course, that when you pick up a book that has Cold War in the subtitle, you expect is that everything's going to be explained by the Cold War. And I actually thought when I started the book, that would be true. But very quickly, I realized that's actually not true, that the Cold War is there. It's relevant all the time. Sometimes people are thinking about it. Sometimes they're not. But it doesn't explain a lot. There's a lot of other things going on not really related to the Cold War that helped you understand uh, why culture took the shape that it did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I have to say there was a, a chapter you did about sort of the, uh, the rise of the English department, um, which <laughs> yeah. I loved and we'll get to. Okay. But one of the things that really, really brought that back to me, I saw you use the word aporia, which I haven't heard in years. <laughs> and I said, and there are moments in your book where are these, these wonderful little aporias, which I couldn't quite tell how you wanted us to interpret them. And it, it reminded me a bit of my teenage son's favorite question, which is, are you trolling me? <laughs> and it's, it, I want to give you an example. And you say, you're, right. you're talking about um, uh, Gropius and you're talking about... Um, you, you're talking about sort of um, design. You say what Gropius was doing was alighting the conventional distinction between objects created for appreciation and objects created for use between what you encounter in a museum and what you encounter in a hardware store or your kitchen. Then you say he was making space for the ketchup bottle. Mm-hmm. And I thought, that's awesome. <laughs> and I thought, I still am not quite sure whether you're saying that the fact that he was making space for the ketchup bottle is a good or a bad thing. How much irony is there in that space? And yeah. I was just kind of wondering, it's such a well-designed sentence. And, and there, there are many of them in the book. And I thought, yeah. well, how do you feel about that ketchup bottle? And I've got you here. Yeah. Tell me. So I deliberately try to let the reader make up their own mind mm. about what I'm talking about. Um, I, I tried, my feeling about being a writer is that you're trying to help people think, but you're not telling them what to think. So the book, maybe some readers experience this as being very elliptical and annoying, but the book is really designed to help people understand what was going on and allow them to make their own judgments about it. I'm not really trying to, I mean, I think all these people are super interesting and I try to persuade people of that. But I'm not trying to tell them 
whether to approve or disapprove. I think I don't like approval and disapproval. Anyway, I, I get that. I get that. But I guess yeah. I really what I want to know is just because so much of uh, the, the where I work is about design. Yeah. And I think that making a ketchup bottle is a serious business in my business. Yeah. No, I yeah. agree. Yeah. yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think they, uh, Albers and, and uh, Bajos were onto something. Um, and uh, and this, and the artist took them up on it. Um, that's an important moment when you realize that, and Andy Warhol was trained that way at uh, mm-hmm. at, at uh, Carnegie Mellon or what was called Carnegie Institute in Pittsburgh. You know, that objects made for, for example, machinery is designed. Right. Um, it has aesthetic dimensions, and you can adopt those aesthetic dimensions in fine art when you use a hard edge style, for example, as the pop artists did. That's where it comes from. It comes from Bauhaus. And mm-hmm. I think that's a really important moment in 20th century artistic thought. I agree. I agree. And, and speaking of those communities like Bauhaus and even Black Mountain and all the other sort of communities, I mean, a lot of your book is about these sort of inter personal communities, you know, that are involved in the idea yeah. of business. Yeah. And I, I, as I read the book, I couldn't help but thinking that all the social networks you're talking about are like analog, right? And yeah. how different the, the uh, intellectual and artistic world is now that all our networks have been digitized. Yeah. And I was wondering, I mean, I, I know you're not writing about the digital community, and obviously it's going to take a long time before we can even really understand what's going on. Yeah. with how social media is affecting the way we um, break into communities. But have you, in your experience as like, let's say a teacher, seen the way that these digital communities are changing the way people sort of exchange um, ideas and, and develop their own sort of um, uh, intellectual learning communities? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't really have a very informed answer to it. I mean, obviously, I look at my students who are mostly teenagers or you know, in their early twenties and their method of communicating with each other and, um, and, and, uh, acquiring knowledge is of course very different from me. I'm an analog dinosaur. Um, and, uh, you know, for example, just to take a banal example that every teacher probably has experienced in the last year is when you're doing zoom, there's this chat function and, um, the students are on the chat function the whole time that they're listening to you talk and they're carrying on a separate conversation, most of which is in, in kind of digital language. I don't even understand, <laughs> but they get very excited on, on chat. And yeah. I actually try not to look at it because I can only process one you know, stream of information at a time, sure. but they're probably not just doing chat. They're probably listening to some song while they're doing all this stuff. Totally. So, yeah. So that's just a different, my kids are like that. Um, they're, you know, they can do that. I can't do that really. Um, so, you know, it just shows that there's a level of literacy that they have that enables them to process multiple streams of information. My sense, and I don't think I'm not being a grumpy old guy, but I think when I say this, this is not really meant as a criticism though, is that, the landscape in terms of to say art and ideas, the stuff we're talking about, is enormous, enormously vast, almost limitless. Where's the horizon mm-hmm. for what's on the web? There's no horizon for it. Um, it's just there just seems to be incredible amount of stuff, product out there that's accessible in one way or another. But the landscape feels very flat. It's not like there's monuments out there. There's mm-hmm. just 
an endless amount of stuff, which all more or less is, has the same degree of temperature. It's like heat death in thermodynamics. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like all the molecules are about the same temperature. So I don't mean that in a bad way. It's just yeah. a very different way of looking at the world of cultural production. Oh, for sure. I, I just kept thinking that the, the, the future, Louis Menand, is going to be coming through people's, you know, Twitter feeds. Like, you know, they're, they're, yeah. they're young public intellectuals who are talking all the time. That stuff is going to become data for future historical documents. If it doesn't disappear. Yeah. Right. And it's like the smart ones are going to understand that right now and going to be grabbing that and be turning that into, yeah. you know, works of history. But obviously that's going to take a long time for us to really sort through. One of the things that I really want to talk about were the surprises. There are so many surprises in this book that, that um, you brought to my attention that I did not know anything about. For example, when you talk about uh, Tintin's creator, Hergé, and how he, like Paul Demont of all people, both wrote for Le Soir, you know, yeah, yeah. or or like when Alfred Kazin detutinized uh, Hannah Arendt's <laughs> prose and Arendt corrected his very confused Yiddish. Yiddish. <laughs> What yeah. surprised you the most in your course of research? Because there are so many things like this. This is just too yeah. many, many. There must have been stuff that you had never come across before. All that stuff. I mean, you know, I mean, as I say, in the, I think I say in the preface that uh, I, when I was a kid, I heard of all these people because the kind of house I grew up in. Um, but I, you know, later on had some interest in them, but I didn't really have a very deep sense of who they were and how they interacted and then when you write a book like this and you start doing the research you're kind of amazed that every time you open a you know a door there's a whole story behind it mm -hmm. um, i found the same thing true of the metaphysical club which is an earlier book i wrote about mm -hmm. the 19th century pragmatists it's just they're just incredible stories incredible figures that you didn't and had never heard of who were interestingly part of the story. One of the things that emerged, I think, naturally in the course of this book, uh, the course of writing this book, mm -hmm. is that the characters had a lot of interactions. In other words, you'd read about one character in one chapter and that character would pop up in a later chapter. Yeah. Um, or that characters who didn't seem related actually knew each other and interacted at some stage, famous example being Lionel Trilling and Allen Ginsberg. Right. So I think I vaguely knew that Ginsberg was a student of Trilling, um, but I didn't realize the correspondence that they'd had or, you know, a lot of the intimacy, really a teacher-student intimacy that they enjoyed because they're such different types, really. Yeah, yeah. But there they are, you know, they're, they're, they're quite close in the late 40s. That's fascinating. So, so a lot of stuff was surprising, was surprising to me, and that's the fun of it, you know. Yeah, no, the, I, and I have to say to to, um, to point back to the uh, free play of mind chapter, which I call the English major chapter. Yeah. It was just it was just amazing to me because I was born right in 1969, which you point out is like was the year they had this huge jump in in just the the uh, enrollment of English majors, sort of yeah. everything that went on to sort of basically set the stage for when I walked into that college classroom and graduate classroom was like yeah. all there. It was really just a, just a, a mind blowing kind of thing to um, come across. And yeah. the reason I even bring this up is the company I work for, uh, EPAM Continuum is a, is a firm very much focused on innovation and design, right? And when I first arrived about five years ago, I, I, I sort of read the company's idea of innovation as, as being largely market driven. You know, focused, you know, it's human centered design focused on a specific set of people at a certain time to a certain to accomplish a certain kind of goal. 
And then I compared that to like literary innovation in which, you know, you had your talented individuals aiming to join the tradition, you know, and sort of trying to create this sort of um, transcendent thing and appeal to the broadest group and time uh, that they can. And then reading your book, it made me see that the supposedly timeless sort of uh, ethos really had its own target market and content (laughs) marketing campaigns. And so what I wondered for you, as someone teaching in the 21st century, do you find yourself needing to educate your students in this area? Do they believe in this idea of this kind of disinterested, timeless concept of, of, of literature? Or are today's kids so market focused that they don't need to be disillusioned? And that's the question I have about that. I, I think my students do believe in it, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, they struggle with that belief because at the same time they're being told by their peers and peer culture to be suspicious of claims of disinterestedness or universality or canon and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So uh, so it constantly comes up. I mean, the, particularly the kind of courses that I teach, it tends to come up with students. Um, but they... At some level, most of them do want to experience literature in that way. You know, they want to read a very old book and identify with it. Um, So I think it's still there. But um, I do talk occasionally with students, I mean, in classrooms, I mean, um, about the history of the discipline Mm -hmm. and where the great books came from and, you know, how we got English departments and how English defines itself against other disciplines and how the university operates and all that stuff. And, you know, some of them are really, really interested in that. Those people will probably become professors. (laughs) (laughs) I think the rest of them probably don't think it's who cares really, but um, I think it's a, I think it's of interest, you know, when you're a teacher and particularly when you're a historian, you're interested in trying to get people to see what the backstory is Mm -hmm. uh, of the, of the lives that they're leading right now. And I think a lot of education should be about that. So yeah, it's an important, it's an important thing, but it doesn't just because you know that the way things turned out was not inevitable or natural doesn't mean that, that you're debunking it. You're just demystifying it. Right. Demystification is, as Paul DeMann would say, it's always a good thing. Right. Well, that, and that brings up the great moment in the, uh, the, the uh, chapter we were just talking about, where you write that liberal education is designed to have students see that the domain of human values is illusional. For, uh, but it is, is, you say it's as real as it can be, but it's founded on nothing. Yeah. And I really felt like the free play of mind was, was an inspiring personal statement about you as a teacher and your students and, and yeah. probably the reading public too. Did yeah. you did you surprise yourself when you wound up pinning this stirring call about the mission of liberal arts? I, I don't know that you necessarily <laughs> thought that's how you'd end up. And or did you did writing this book give you a new perspective on, on your teaching? Well, that chapter, um, so this is a chapter on the rise of the university and in particular <clears throat> up the discipline of English, yeah, and uh, which is my discipline, and um, so it begins with chronologically begins with T. S. Eliot and Ezra Pound, the Cambridge School of Criticism, which is I. A. Richards, William Empson, mm-hmm. and Cambridge, England, and then the New Critics by Cleanth Brooks, um, who emerge from the South and then come north to Yale and places like that in the nineteen forties, and create the New Criticism, which is the dominant. School of Criticism in the 50s and really, I think, still is the bedrock of 
the discipline today. Um, and, uh, so that's stuff I've been writing about and thinking about for like 30 years. So that wasn't, I didn't surprise myself in that chapter and the stuff about liberal education is just stuff that I believe. Um, I think what was, I think what it surprised me a little bit, I mean, I wanted to get there, but I wasn't sure I could get there <laughs> was fitting Jacques Derrida into that story. Yeah. But then I realized he fits perfectly into that story. Sure. I, I just I just love the part where you basically get north of Fry going there and going after the <laughs> new critics because you know I've, I've heard like Harold Bloom sort of talk about his distance from the new critics and how he wanted to get away from it but that yeah. really made it very clear to me and it was it was super helpful to read about that I yeah it's I didn't know that so I did not know that that Bloom reviewed uh, or wrote about Fry reviewed Fry mm-hmm. and was blown away by Fry because it answered the what he thought of as the kind of worship of T S Eliot that's right that that was due to me. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's super cool. And I, I want to ask you a little bit about your students and your students now, because we had a guest on the show who's a British economist who was talking, she wrote a book about loneliness. And she said that her students currently are suffering incredibly from the epidemic of loneliness in a way that she's never, ever seen before. And I, I'm kind of curious to ask to talk to someone else who has um, uh, been teaching for a long time and has students right now. Have, have you seen uh, any change in the way students currently are? Are they quantitatively lonelier, perhaps, than the ones who came before, or are they pretty much students and you recognize them as students? <laughs> are you talking about during the pandemic or generally? Well, like, it's pro- probably beforehand. Her yeah. research started yeah. before that, but it was you know yeah. basically with the rise of social media and sort of uh-huh. always. What does she? What? It, what does she mean by? lonely it's self-reported i mean the students are, are saying that these feelings of oh. loneliness isolation yeah um have a difficulty connecting to others she mentioned some she mentioned an ivy league school where they actually have to teach students how to um read people's facial expressions and talk to them and respond to them <laughs> which wow. which blew my uh, mind but you know again yeah. I, haven't, I haven't taught kids in a while so i really don't know it's yeah that's interesting i mean first of all i'm not the kind of professor students talk their personal feelings too okay. so Fair yeah enough. so Fair i mean enough. i it's, i don't have anything against it but i don't, I don't think that i'm the person they turn to and then second uh you know i've been teaching at harvard for about 20 years and harvard students uh network no matter what mm-hmm. so their idea of friendship might be a little bit different from some people's <laughs> idea of it <laughs> yeah Fair enough. Now you've been you've been reviewed and interviewed all over the place for this book. I have to yeah. ask you, what's everybody missing? And you said you talked about uh, Levi Strauss. Is, is that yeah. is that it, or is there something else that you wish they had seen and haven't picked up? I'm curious. No, I'm ha- very happy with the response, and uh, been happy with most of the with all of the. I've done a bunch of podcasts and stuff uh, and everything. Um, the chapter on Levi Strauss and the family of man seems to be one chapter everybody wants to avoid, and I'm just one of my favorite chapters. So, so disappointing, but it's also you could see why if you had a choice between talking about Clown Levi Strauss and Jack Kerouac, mm-hmm. you would talk about Jack Kerouac. So that's fine. Um, I'm also rarely discussed is the chapter on the, the uh, <clears throat> English department, but I'm happy that we were able to talk about it. <laughs> so, you know, those are areas, even Hannah Red, those are areas where people are sart. People feel a little less comfortable, or maybe they feel, you know, most listeners might tune out. Um, whereas if you talk about Jackson Pollock and Andy yeah. Warhol, you know, those are people everybody knows a little bit about. So I would just say um, there's, I think, 19 chapters in the book and there's two or three chapters that 
that just generally don't come up. <laughs> but but they're important to the story for me, and uh, they give it they give the book I think a certain thickness that I aspire to. I, I love this the Sark stuff, and I was so I, w- I was kind of surprised by how influenced he was by kind of you know American culture. Yeah, and sort of films and cowboy movies or whatever, and yeah. and that sense that he saw in that, um, in that something to build existentialism on, and how you know I, when when I learned from you that his uh, existentialism is a humanism was was an extemporaneous talk. I was like, wow, yeah. that, that's really yeah. amazing. Yeah, he was very gifted at that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, as like as was James Baldwin, for example. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, so I mean he given a talk like this before so he kind of had it in his head but yeah um and so we don't really know what he said because the book version that everybody knows you know was done quite ex post facto mm-hmm. um but yeah he, the thing about Sartre de Beauvoir is that they were very anti-american on one level because they were anti-capitalist right um but they liked american popular culture most of it they liked the movies they liked the uh, music yeah. uh, and they definitely liked the novels cool Okay, so here's the last thing. You say in the, in, the, in the preface, if you asked me when I was growing up what the most important good in life was, I would have said freedom. I now see that freedom was the slogan of the times. Uh, and you say, as I got older, I start to wonder what freedom is, what it can realistically mean. So I'm going to ask you, Louis, what do you think about freedom on August 3rd, 2021? Right. What do you think about it right now, today? Yeah, so it. It was helpful for me to write the book for that reason, the reason that you just described, which is that, you know, when you're a kid, you use terms like freedom or liberty or autonomy pretty unproblematically, and then you go to graduate school or you, you know, start reading sociology and things, and you, you know, you start to wonder exactly what that means. So I'm kind of skeptical of the notion of autonomy Generally, I think life is heteronymous, sort of through and through. But I do think that, and I think this is something that Sartre sort of tries to get and other figures in the book, but him in particular, it is a feeling that you have, that you have control over your choices that is actually not correlated to specific social conditions. So the example I give in the book is driving a car. So when, for example, when I drive a car, I think a lot of people drive a car, they feel free. Mm-hmm. You're behind the wheel, you're on the open road, da 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 There's a kind of feeling of, of, of a lack of constraint on you. But in fact, you know, if you think about it, it's one of the most highly regulated activities that you perform. Um, you have to have a license, you have to have a registration, you have to be inspected, you have to follow the traffic laws, blah, blah, blah. And if you break any of those rules, they take your license away. So it's not free at all, really. Many of the things you do during the day are far freer than driving a car, but it feels free. So I think this feeling of free, however, whatever makes people feel that is very valuable to human beings because we're not herd animals. You know, We don't do things because everybody else is doing them. We like to do things. It's important for us to do things differently or our own way of doing things or to feel that it's our own way of doing things. Yeah. And, and when you take that away from people, they get very upset at a level that's very hard to reach. So an example that, you know, that's a little hard for people like me to get my head around, but it's a good example of this, is people who consider wearing a face mask during the pandemic a deprivation of liberty. I feel I'm like, what's your problem? You know, this is 
This is a social good. It's for public health. It's not for you, you know, jerk. But they really do experience it as a loss of freedom. And you have to, you have to grasp that feeling because you and I might experience when somebody tells us, oh, you can't say that or you can't teach that book. It's like, what? You know, I, you took away my freedom to teach. Yeah. Um, that's important to us. It's less important about wearing a face mask. But to some people, that's a signifier of lo- some kind of loss of liberty. They can't even articulate why it's important, but it is important to them. So a lot of the book is about people trying to come to terms with that feeling and why it's important and why it has to be preserved, because that's the threat people thought totalitarianism is opposed to that would deprive you of your individual liberty. And that's what the United States and the liberal democracies stood for in the Cold War. Well, that is awesome, Louis. Thank you so much for, for freeing up a little of your time to have a conversation um, today. And I look forward to, to reading the sequel of the book, which, you, you know, is going to be a hit, I'm sure. <laughs> Thank you, Ken. Those were great questions. It was really fun to talk to you. EPAM Continuum integrates business, experience, and technology consulting, focused on accelerating breakthrough ideas into meaningful impact. At EPAM Continuum, we're very deliberate about the term innovation. For us, it means turning ideas into stuff that's real. Because from our perspective, ideas aren't really innovative until they exist. Thanks are due to our guest, Louis Manan, for a truly fascinating conversation. He was interviewed by Resonance Test producer Ken Gordon. Kip Palalis is our sound engineer, and I'm your host, Kenji Ross. Until the next one, thank you.